Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 22nd, 2018, and this is episode 74. Politicos is not edge-of-the-seat exciting, but we're exceptionally well-informed. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicos Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash politicos. I'm Scott Delana Bohm. And I'm Ian Bushfield. This week's music is once again unmade by Ian Cromwell. Cromwell runs Locals Lounge here in Vancouver, and he helped connect us with a lot of the local bands you've been hearing lately. The song you're listening to right now has been entered for the CBC Music Searchlight competition. You can vote for that song every day, we'll remind you, until February 28th. Visit cbcmusic.ca slash searchlight slash 4936, and that link will be in the show notes. Today is our special BC Budget Edition. First, we, of course, have to thank our premier sponsors and guests today, Lindsay Teds and Blake Hodsons, for helping make the show possible. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's brand new daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast will receive 25% off subscriptions when you enter the offer code Politicoast, all lowercase, when you sign up for a free two-week trial of BC Today newsletter. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Getting right into our first segment, Baby's First Budget. The BC NDP's government put out their first budget this week on Tuesday and a lot in it. Uh, housing affordability was the main thing that everyone, I think, really had their eye on. And we'll be talking about that in our second segment where we're chatting with Professor Tom Davidoff. But moving on to the other key components, uh, childcare, I guess, is the main thing. Yeah, the... BCNDP talked in their platform about this idea of $10 a day childcare, and the BC Greens didn't like that. But clearly, childcare was still front and center. So instead of $10 a day childcare, what we have is Childcare BC, which is going to be this $1 billion program built up over the next three years to set BC on a path toward universal childcare. And maybe we'll see $10 a day childcare one day. But This is the scaffolding of a new social safety program. This is actually a pretty big thing. Like 60 years ago, we built healthcare. 100 years ago, we built education. Now we're building a childcare system so that parents can just expect to have support for their kids. The details of it are confusing because it's a very big program and it's targeting a lot of different ways to try to really help the lowest income and highest need people first. So they're setting out to create 22,000 spaces over this period, which is massive. A lot of that's going to be done through creating this affordable childcare benefit to reduce costs by $1,250 per month for the lowest income, and it will be scaled down progressively. And they're going to be putting more money to licensed childcare providers to reduce fees. And like they talked in the throne speech, finding ways to support licensed childcare providers to train more early childhood educators, and to get unlicensed spaces to become licensed spaces. And this seems to have been met with 
pretty loud approval from people who were calling for this. It doesn't satisfy the $10 a day childcare, but it, people, but it's a step towards that. And I think everyone's willing to accept that for now. Yeah, those are basically the only complaints I heard about it was that people were really hoping for the $10 day uh, stuff. And yeah, I think it is good that they're targeting the people most in need when they're trying to set this up. Because one of the big problems with you know, Quebec's famous $7 day childcare is that in terms of the people who benefit, it doesn't really handle the distributional stuff pretty well. And like a lot of the more well-off people end up being some of the primary beneficiaries of it. So trying to avoid that's definitely a good thing. Yeah, so all in all, pretty well received. It was amusing to watch the BC Liberals try to attack it as you didn't bring in $10 a day childcare, which is never a strong line of attack to say that thing we yelled at you was that we said was a bad idea during the election. And then after we didn't want to do even in the clone speech, now you're not doing it, so we're going to try to hold you to account. There's just no firm ground for Wilkinson and the Liberals to stand on there. Yeah, their response has been great overall to the budget. It's been kind of a little muted. I think part of that is the BCNDP actually managed to put together a fairly decent package of policies that aren't going to break the bank or do anything too crazy. Yeah, like you mentioned, we'll get into housing with Tom Davidoff. The other big thing a lot of people noted in here about the affordability was they set out their path to eliminate the MSP. And we'll be talking with Professor Lindsay Teds about that after we talk to Davidoff and her take on that. And those two major platforms really try to go to that affordability thing. And what the NDP can say with this is, here's all the things the liberals didn't do. Look how easy they were. Well, maybe they weren't easy. This clearly shows the amount of work that went into it. But I've seen a string of articles from people who might be a bit more partisan in favor of the NDP, like David Moscrop, friend of the show. Uh, but Gary Mason put out a piece in the Globe and Mail saying, this strikes the right balance. This is a tax and spend budget, you can call it that. But where it taxes it taxes people without much sympathy. So most of the taxes come in through, I think, actually the stuff we'll talk about with Tom Davidoff in speculation tax and other taxes on either people causing problems, arguably, in the housing sector, or they come in in high-income people, as in higher taxes on luxury cars and cigarettes. And there's not much sympathy for people who are spending $300,000 on a sports car. Yeah, they... I think picked some pretty good areas to tats rather than yeah just you know, raising the income tats or some other issues that can get a little more questionable. Although the one area that I think they've gotten the most flack for on the tatses and probably for decent reasons is the new payroll tats that's coming in to offset the MSP, but that'll be in our third segment. So there are Tons of new spending besides the childcare, which is a huge program, besides all of the different investments in housing, which includes a ton of capital spending and the capital spending they've already announced, like that Patello Bridge. They also are talking about improving BC's pharmacare coverage plan. So bringing something like 250,000 more people under pharmacare coverage, which means 
more affordable drugs for more low-income British Columbians. Again, hard things to argue against other than on the can we afford it route, which they they ba- oh, yeah. they balance well, I, it. We should probably should have started off the segment with mentioning that you know it's a balanced budget so the can the province afford it especially with taxes that aren't that terrible to raise it's yeah it's a hard argument to make and you know i think it serves the current government fairly well in that respect and it's worth remembering that the budget update they put in in the fall was the one that brought in some of the newer taxes or some of the high income earner taxes so that gave them more spending room in this one and they've used it like they said they kept their promise on freezing ferry rates and returning the seniors discount which we've mocked a bit in the past but it was what they promised i can see the arguments for it and i can see how it wins you votes at least there's also a lot of money here going to healthcare, 550 million dollars almost over three years a lot of that targeted at seniors care one thing i did see was I think the NDP had actually campaigned on making sure every British Columbian can see a family doctor, and there's no path to that here. There's money for people in remote communities to have access to healthcare teams in the area, and I think that's probably a more realistic way to go in the end. But again, it's one of those on the edge of broken promise because reality sometimes hits you. I did really like seeing that there's about over $200 million going to Indigenous peoples and services around that. What I really liked and I found interesting was $50 million going to preserve Indigenous languages. The Museum of Anthropology, I believe, and Royal BC Museum, and I think I mentioned this even in the throne speech, have really good programs around trying to preserve these languages. We have 200 different nations in this province speaking all kinds of different languages with sometimes just a few dozen people who know it. So that'll be really good to see that meat put on that bone for those programs. And University of Victoria is creating a new Indigenous law program, which as conversations follow the verdict around the death of Colton Bushi and now the not guilty verdict following Tina Fontaine, there are a lot of calls for looking at the justice system differently and what else can we do. And having an Indigenous law program is a good start to at least thinking about these. So it'll be interesting to watch that come together. So there were a few things in here that I think were clear that the Greens had their hands on. That's why there's no renter's grant. That's why there's not officially $10 a day childcare. Maybe one of the most obvious was this $4 million set aside for a basic income test pilot over two years. I don't know if that's going to be enough, but maybe you don't want to do a giant you know, multi-million dollar test pilot on basic income. It seems a little low, but you know, there's a bunch of other pilots out there. It, you know, Ontario's doing one. There's a few happening in Europe, and I, I wish I'd save this, but someone on Twitter suggested that this was basically there to troll former guest of the show Kevin Milligan. Because, <laughs> yeah, he's um, said that maybe we should wait for the first ones to come in before we start throwing money at yet another pilot. At least it's a small amount. Maybe he'll <laughs> get a research grant out of that. The other things I did see some criticism on is they are raising the carbon tax, but beyond that, the budget didn't really touch on the environment at all. In terms of infrastructure, there weren't specifics put in there, but, you know, they didn't name expanding the SkyTrain as part of a environment plan, which would be an easy connection. Yeah, just like anyone who's ever tried to drive down Broadway at five in the afternoon is, you know, 
there's a lot of fossil or a lot of co2 going in the air for not very much movement happening and then the other side where i think they had more space to move was on the education file they pump up that they met essentially the supreme court of canada's requirements in terms of hiring teachers to meet the class size requirements and they've done a little bit like they talked about in the throne speech with putting money to the playgrounds fund but at the post-secondary level aside from some of the housing stuff we'll talk about there's no extra support for students there's nothing to stop rising tuition fees there's nothing to really help on student loans other than removing some of the interest like they talked about last year well there is 2.6 billion in capital spending over the next three years for post-secondary so it's not nothing so but building new buildings on a campus doesn't make education more affordable so i was at university of alberta at the height of the last oil boom and we got lots of great new engineering buildings but that didn't make tuition go down. In fact, the university started creating new fees to levy against us. And we're like, come on, you can build a giant new building. And medical degree programs is they built a research facility, a giant one, but they didn't have the money to staff it. So they couldn't actually put the researchers in there. So the capital is good. And I'm sure if you want to build new programs like the engineering programs they're talking about in the interior and the north and this law program, new buildings will be great. But you also have to fund the teachers, the professors, and the grad students and the undergrads, or else it's still unattainable. Yeah, so those are more or less the highlights. I think it landed fairly well, and the rather muted opposition to it more or less says that this was successful as a budget. I think it's worth emphasizing how important of a first step that is or early test it is for John Horgan. When the NDP first took office in the summer, I don't think even they were really expecting it, especially how it happened. So there was a mix of a lot of really quick, easy wins that they did, but also a lot of stumbling. And now it looks like they're really hitting the stride in a way that's even probably stronger than anyone would have expected. People expect a new government less than six months in to governing to be able to pull together a budget, but one that you can't really poke a hole in other than, well, it spends more than I would spend. When you look at 16 years of the BC Liberals where the criticism was they didn't care about affordability. And well, even Andrew Wilkinson, while he was running for leader, it was pointed out he talked about how they talked too much about debt to GDP ratio and didn't worry about affordability. And that's why the BC NDP won. Now the BC NDP is Put that platform forward and that into action with this budget and wilkinson's just going <laughs> it's tax too much he's got it's, nothing he's got nothing <laughs> this christmas was slightly more nuanced than that <laughs> sure but even as you read through the statements they're putting out they can point out at one policy but then other parts of their statements they talk about how it didn't meet the platform commitments they made which is yeah, it's True. not a great position but, to be yeah. as an opposition, especially when you disagreed with those platform commitments. And meanwhile, this cements Andrew Weaver's support for the government because there's not much in here that he can really bicker about. There are some things he was throwing out previously about new entire bans on foreign buyers and things like that. But I think he was just hoping to get literally anything, starting throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what would stick and I can't see him 
bringing a government down over this budget, considering it's got his fingerprints in all the right spots. All right, well, we're sitting down now over the internet with UBC economist Tom Davidoff. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Tom, what was your overall take on this week's budget from the BCNDP? Well, uh, I was ecstatic. You know, until the very last moment, I did not know what a speculation tax was. And I was concerned it was like a tax on flipping a property over a short horizon. But it turns out a speculation tax sounds a lot like what we proposed in the BC Housing Affordability Fund, which is if you're not an income tax payer and you're not a landlord, you're going to have to pay much higher property taxes. Uh, We have not precisely seen the implementation details, but it really sounds a lot like what we proposed. So I'm very happy. So uh, can you kind of walk us through what is in that tax and how it's differed from the proposal you put forward? Well, I can talk about the proposal we put forward. I, you know, so what we said is, you know, if you're a senior citizen, you're off the hook. If you've lived in the house for a long time, you're off the hook. Otherwise, you get a bump in your property tax. Uh, We had suggested one and a half percent. They're going to phase in from a half to two percent. And we had proposed credits. So every dollar of income tax you pay is a credit. Uh, against your tax burden. And every dollar of gross rental income as a landlord that you declare from a given address uh, on your taxes would be a dollar for dollar credit. Now, what I don't know, and uh, I'm a bit concerned about, is I think what they're going to go with is as long as you pay any income tax in BC, you're totally off the hook. So, If uh, I'm a student at UBC and I work at Mac's convenience store and make a hundred bucks and I declare that, then I believe I can live in a $6 million house uh, with no extra property tax surcharge. However, uh, if I file my taxes in Ontario, I think it's a different story. So that speculation tax will apply to Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, the capital and Nanaimo regional districts, Kelowna and West Kelowna. Do you think that's enough? Or do you think it should have been a province-wide tax? I know people in Kamloops have been talking about some of the housing pressures they're starting to feel. It's a great question. You know, there's a trade-off. I think the downside of a tax like this is if you're a heavily tourist-dependent economy. You know, Whistler, I don't think, would want to scare away uh, rich people who don't work in BC uh, from buying property and vacationing there because you know, that's sort of their bread and butter. In Vancouver, I think we've got a healthy enough economy that if we lose some tourists, but get back a lot of houses, on balance, we'll be happy with that. So as we had initially structured the proposal, municipalities could opt in or out, uh, depending on their own preference. It sounds like the province has their own ideas about what the better and worse places are to implement. I don't have uh, much more to add beyond that trade-off. So there were some other proposals put or other policies put forward in this budget uh for example they're expanding the foreign buyers tax and implementing a progressive property tax do you talk a little bit about that and yeah what are kind of the benefits and trade-offs of that well higher uh, property taxes generally speaking so you know i should take a step back and i know we've talked about this in the past but <clears throat> my strong belief is uh, a place like british columbia uh, and especially greater vancouver where you have 
inelastic land supply. It's just very hard to build new homes. And yet lots and lots of people want to live here and build homes. You've got to line out the door for real estate. So the smart thing to do is have really high taxes on real estate. And that would allow you to have really low taxes on income and sales, which would mean if you're a renter, you get to keep most of your pre-tax income. And when you buy stuff at the store, it's cheap. Uh, but if you try to invest in real estate from outside the province, you're going to get whacked with a lot of tax. So the beauty of that is when you shift the tax burden to real estate, you're both improving income distribution and helping out lower income locals because renters tend to be lower income. And you're making the economy more efficient by eliminating distortions in the employment and goods market. So anything the province does to shift the tax burden onto real estate, especially if it's progressive and on higher value real estate, I think is really terrific. So the surcharge on uh, above $3 million homes, both at the property tax level every year, uh, and you know maybe I like it a little bit less doing it when you sell, uh, those are both, I think, really positive. Now, there's even a hidden benefit with that which is between foreign buyer, uh, the speculation tax, which I suspect will be weighted towards the top of the market, but I don't know, and uh, the uh, surcharge on $3 million plus homes, I think it's very likely that demand is going to be heavier going forward at the bottom of the market uh, than at the top. That isn't to say, you know, obviously a beautiful home will sell more than a condo, but I think we're going to see really negative price pressure at the top of the market. Uh, And so if you can't unload a $6 million single family home, but you could easily unload four $1.5 million townhomes, you're going to really hope that you can get zoning permission to subdivide. And so affluent single-family neighborhoods, we may see improved politics for allowing greater density uh, with uh, that kind of supply densification being the other half of our affordability problem along with a screwed-up tax code. And that does seem to be the other half of the 30-point plan they laid out. The first 13 points it really focuses on are the more, I guess, demand side, if you want to look at it that way. The other... 16 or, or 17 are the supply talking about this $6 billion investment in homes, but picking off what you're just talking about, uh, one of the perhaps less detailed uh, suggestions was recommendation 26, which was this empower local governments with $5 million to help fund housing as- needs assessments and allowing rental zoning. Do you think this might be the steps towards what you're talking about? Well, rental zoning is interesting. You know, um, I have a very specific preference on the supply side, which is if I was the province, I would make very clear legally that municipalities have the blessing from the province to sell uh, zoning rights even more um, uh, transparently than through community amenity contributions. I would say, hey, we're going to freeze our zoning, but if you want to build townhomes, it's going to cost you $500,000 a pop or actually auction the rights so you can figure out what the market would be willing to pay to build that stuff. Municipalities then would make a fortune. Uh, they could use that on affordable homes and you'd get a ton of market housing built, uh, which would be very good for pricing. So that would be my preference. However, rental only zoning is interesting because rental, it just tends to be more affordable than condos. 
so you get uh, automatic affordability when you do approvals and upzone. An interesting question is whether municipalities are going to take this up. You know, neighbors, uh, at least in places I've uh, lived, I-, I have heard pejoratives about renters, you know, specifically on the North Shore. Oh, I don't like that neighborhood. It's full of renters. So, you know, bad enough, you got multifamily next door to you. Now it's going to be renters instead of uh, more affluent condo owners. So I don't know how much uh, political support rental only zoning will get. I think in the city of Vancouver, we already know uh, that the municipality wants it. So we will see some more rental uh, likely going forward in Vancouver. Um, So circling back to the property transfer tax, there's one question I have, and I've seen some criticisms levied against the increase for over $3 million properties that's going to make land assemblies more costly, and that might potentially hurt affordability, particularly on rental side, because it's hard enough already to get the economics to work out for those projects compared to condos. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that sounds a little bit like um, self-serving developers to me, uh, or landowners. You know, it's possible that an increase in the property transfer tax, the first thing it does is lowers how much a developer is willing to pay. You know, a developer is going to write a pro forma, an estimate of the profitability uh, of whatever deal they can do subject to zoning. They'll come up with the highest and best use, the most profitable project they can do. And uh, when that, uh, when they figure that out, you know, they figure out the profitability and that's how much the land is worth. Now, if you have to pay more property transfer tax, that's coming out of your pocket as the buyer, and that reduces affordability. So, uh, I'm sorry, that reduces your ability to pay for the land, and that comes out of the landowner's pocket. You know, just because you have to pay more property transfer tax, you know, you could say, no, 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 the landowner is going to insist on the same price, uh, and the developer is going to pass that through in rents. But wait a second, what do the tenants care about whether you paid property transfer tax or not. You know, whatever rent you thought was the best rent to charge to make as much money as possible or whatever sale price you had in mind, uh, whether or not there's a property transfer tax in place shouldn't affect that. Now, on the margin, maybe there's fewer new projects because of the property transfer tax, because some guys whose properties are worth, you know, $4 million for a redevelopment, but $3.7 uh, if they keep living in it, won't will decide not to sell because of the extra property transfer tax. Uh, but I, I think that's a small number of cases. And the idea that developers are going to pass this through, uh, you know, somehow to renters more than in condos, it makes very close to zero sense to me. One of the things I can't remember if we talked about it with you over the summer when we sat down, and of course, people should go back and listen to that episode. One of the things the BCNDP ran on was this idea of a $400 renters grant. And that didn't make it into the throne speech and that didn't make it into the budget here. And Horgan's still talking about it might come up eventually. But what did come in here was this idea of reviewing the homeowners grant, which was the counterpoint to that, the idea of let's give money to homeowners. And the argument for the renters grant was that it at least creates some parity, some, sorry, some parity. <laughs> That's a big word. Uh, what are your thoughts on the homeowner's grant? And is this something that should just be burned to the ground? Uh, yeah, you know, the homeowner's grant provides uh, buyers uh, or, or, or homeowners, obviously, an exemption from property taxes when they have 
relatively low-value properties under some threshold. 1.6, I guess, is the latest million phased out over some range. So, you know, in a way, you can call that a form of a progressive property tax. You know, if you you one thing you, they maybe should have done is rate you know done an across the board increase in school tax rates so that everybody pays more property tax. Uh, you know, say in an amount equivalent to the homeowner's grant, and then you'd have uh, you know still progressivity in the property tax. Uh, you know, without losing revenue, so they could have gone that way. Uh, but generally speaking, again, there's too much. Uh, too little taxation of real property in the province. So I would say uh, good, good riddance. On the $400 renters grant, they are spending, as I understand it, uh, more money on assistance to poor renters. Now, an awful lot of renters are poor to begin with, uh, but I think they've decided to focus their rental assistance at the bottom of the income distribution. And I, I don't have much of a problem with that. What are your thoughts on the size of the investment they're talking about in building affordable homes. So they're talking about $6 billion over 10 years. It's this banner number, biggest investment ever, 114,000 homes, 14,000 in the middle missing for rental units. They didn't define it. And that's been used by everyone to mean everything. Uh, A bunch of new student housing and lots of partnerships as well. Yeah, so let me do the math off the top of my head. So they're going to get 114,000 units for $6 billion. 52,000 is what my calculator tells me. 52,000 per unit. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. They're partnering with uh, developers and giving uh, with some kind of $50,000 in subsidy on the rents or something. Because 52K isn't buying a unit in Vancouver, that's for sure. You know, uh, generally speaking, I don't support uh, government construction of housing. Uh, I would m- more prefer uh, a, a subsidy to renters, I think, uh, or just a, a cash transfer to people with low incomes. The problem is even with 114,000 units, everybody who wants uh, a subsidized unit isn't going to be able to get one. You know, it helps, but I think uh, generally speaking, just just more efficient to give money to people who need it is the short answer. Okay. Um. So they've Raising the foreign buyer stats and expanding it to cover a bunch of different areas that weren't previously covered. Do you foresee that having a significant effect on the market at all? Uh, well, I think certainly we've seen the top of the market slow relative to the bottom of the market in Vancouver. And I would not be surprised to see a similar pattern uh, on the island and in Kelowna. You know, around Vancouver, where the affordability problem is most you know, obviously, we didn't get affordability going from no tax to 15%. So I don't think going to from 15 to 20 will do much. We're at about 4% sort of declared foreign buyer recently. Uh, I'm sure it'll go down from there. Uh, but I think, you, you know, sort of reaching to have much of an impact. And it may reduce tax revenue, too. You know, uh, you're probably over the top of the Laffer curve. That is, if you lowered the tax, you'd get enough uh, more foreign buyers that you'd actually raise more revenue likely. Do you see taking this plan as a whole, it having enough there to really make a dent on affordability? And at the same time, will the liberals' threats or worst fears of a crash in housing prices precipitate out of some of these measures? 
Well, look, I, I told somebody else, you know, I think you could make a, I don't know if you guys are old enough to know what a fluff or nut or sandwich is. You could make a marshmallow fluff and peanut butter sandwich for a few hundred people and probably lower housing prices just because we've already seen a softening at the top of the market. And the condo market is so richly priced that it sure seems primed for a correction. So I think the NDP was taking a real chance because uh, clearly the measures they're taking aren't going to raise housing prices, and they certainly might lower them in an environment where we're at risk of a significant correction to begin with. You know, with this market, you never know. Uh, It's been so resilient. Maybe prices will continue to escalate. Uh, but, uh, you know, even without these measures, there might've been a downturn and there certainly is the risk of a very significant downturn. Uh, and, uh, should things come to a crashing halt in the economy as a result of that, uh, I think you're right. The liberals are going to be, uh, happy to pounce on that. Do you have any other major thoughts taking the thing as a whole? <sighs> you know, uh, I should probably, I, I myself should look more at the uh, supply stuff that they're doing. I, the 52,000 per unit, that's, you know, I'm not sure exactly what you get with 52,000. I, I suspect they're lowballing the cost. It's probably construction on city-owned land that you could sell for a lot of money. So they may be ignoring the opportunity cost of the land to the public sector. But, you know, I think you're right. I mean, the progressivity on the, on the property tax, the BC Housing Affordability Fund, uh, and the uh, giant foreign buyer tax now. I think I think the key issue uh, is we'll, we'll see how much it solves problems in the market, but there's no question that buying real estate in British Columbia from outside British Columbia with no plan to occupy it, uh, no plan to be a landlord, that's just going to be a very expensive proposition. And we're definitely going to see a lot less of that going forward. Uh, yeah, so I just did look it up. Uh, first line of their... Uh, section in the housing affordability plan is through partnerships. So yeah, they are going to be leaning on other people to help deliver those units. One of the big things I think they even talked about in the throne speech was this idea of a housing hub that's going to, it's literally titled building partnerships, building homes. And it's the idea of working with nonprofits, church groups, student group or universities to build student housing and all those kind of things. Oh, let's talk about universities. I think that's fairly big. I, you know, I know for UBC and I think for other universities, it's really been an obstacle that they can't borrow money because they cannot build rental housing for students or even that easily for faculty. But now they can use their own, say, endowment lands uh, and, uh, and, 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 the, and the proceeds from renting stuff out to build their own rental housing. And, you know, students renting housing, I think, are a pretty important factor in our rental market. And taking a lot of them off the market and in on-campus housing could be a real plus for affordability. So I think that's not to be sneezed at. And that was just an administrative change that needed to be made. Do you have a rough sense of what that would do to the vacancy rate? Nope. I have not done (laughs) even a back-of-the-envelope calculation. We know Patrick over on the Pod Keep Our Land podcast is involved in his day job in advocacy for a lot of these issues on student housing. So I know he was really excited to see that pay off in the budget. And I know a lot of students, I imagine, are, or at least students who are advocating for more housing. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't most of them. Unless you're on the uh, 10-year plan, you're not going to see any new rental housing in your 10-year university, unfortunately. Uh, the one other thing that I thought was interesting in there as part of their effort to crack down on tax fraud and loopholes is they talk about expanding information collection and data sharing with the federal government, especially, mm-hmm. and finding ways to look into that. Because I know... 
something we've talked about before has been just the lack of information we have to work off of on this. Do you think there's good opportunities in there for the province to really start getting you the data you need? And at, on the same line, they're now requiring uh, pre or pre-sales to be registered and track for tax purposes. Do you see that having much an effect? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff wrapped in those questions, uh, and thank you for raising them. The information sharing, you know, with the uh, speculation tax, everybody's going to have to go on the record now about their income tax status, and so. You know, if you want to say, oh, don't worry, I made $500 last year, uh, but but somebody else bought the house, right? That's going to invite questions from CRA, one hopes. You know, CRA had already said they were going to spend more effort auditing uh, tax returns in British Columbia. Well, you know, if people are going to try and evade the speculation tax with a sort of fugazi uh, income tax return, that should really trigger a response from CRA. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the province will do its part. It, it's similar to the empty homes tax. You know, you can have all these people saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, my primary residence. And CRA absolutely ought to come and say, OK, well, then let, let's see your global income or explain to us how it is on this paltry income you declared uh, that you uh, have a multimillion dollar home. So, uh, yeah, I think the information sharing is, is with, uh, with tax authorities is very important uh, on pre-sales. You know, generally speaking, I think there's there's just not enough information. If I was going to buy a condo today, I, I it would be interesting for me to know what pre-sales are selling for, but I don't know. There's no public record of them. And so you have this important component of the condo market where people are flying blind. The developers uh, know what's happening in the market, but buyers really don't have a way of knowing that. And I think the more public data there is, the better. You know, generally speaking, you have these things like Zillow in the U.S. You can so easily look up what homes are transacted for. Uh, it's more challenging here in British Columbia. And, you know, now the, the province regulates the realtors. I think that data ought to be uh, available for free to the public. You know, uh, B BC Assessment and the land title uh, entities sort of sell the data to vendors, but th there's no privacy concern. I think they're just trying to make, you know, use this as a source of revenue the land title data. And I, I think it ought to be made for free to the public uh, with easy access. Not just because it would make your job easier, right? No, I have the data. I think it would probably undermine me every, uh, you know, uh, what, what did, what did uh, Trump call them? 400 pound guy sitting on his bed could now uh, you know, be a, a real estate economist with really good data. But I think that would be beneficial for uh, people trying to find a home. Uh, is there anything else in the budget that you'd like to discuss? No, although we should talk a little bit about uh, short-term rentals, probably. You know, just recently, the province uh, got into this uh, agreement with Airbnb, where they're going to upfront collect uh, sales and if and applicable hotel taxes. Uh, hopefully, they'll uh, start charging people income tax on short-term rental, because, you know, we just have this problem in the city that short-term rental is a lot more lucrative than renting to a full-time tenant. And, you know, that's going to have, you know, maybe it'll tire out as an industry, but until it does uh, or reaches exhaustion, you know, there's the risk of a lot of rental stock turning into short-term rental, uh, which, you know, people are up in arms about foreign buyers, but, you know, short-term stayers, uh, it's the same thing. It's people who don't live and work here uh, occupying the real estate. And so getting that taxed, I think, is very important. And, you know, hopefully the speculation tax 
uh, covers that use as well. One of the things on that Airbnb type issue they mentioned, and I definitely agree. I mean, when we were talking about it, when it first was announced, it just seemed like such a minimal measure to just make sure that they're paying the sales taxes that they're supposed to be paying. But they do mention in this plan that homeowners in stratas will have new powers to deal with short-term rentals. So I think they're going to probably play with the strata act, I imagine, to give strata boards a little bit more authority to crack down if half a condo is let out to Airbnb. Well, you know, Airbnb is now collecting tax uh, information from uh, owners, which I presume gets passed on to the province. So, you know, I think the city of Vancouver is going to have trouble enforcing its limits on how many nights a year you do Airbnb. Well, if they're going to get this data on who the vendor is and what tax was paid, maybe they can now more easily count how many nights a year were a short-term rental. And uh, if they can get the other short-term rental uh, vehicles like uh, whatever, homes, home away or whatever uh, to report, that could be very helpful in enforcement uh, of uh, limitations. Okay, uh, so switching gears a bit, uh, about a month ago, you put out a list of suggestions for the upcoming municipal election and things you'd like to see people campaign on. Mind uh, walking our listeners through some of the highlights? Yeah, let's do it. I uh, Now, some of this is my own personal ideological preferences and uh, gets away from my job as an economist, but uh, I'm going to pull up that document. Okay, campaign issues. All right, so let me read through this. Okay, number one, parking. You know, this is like, as an economist, this makes me crazy. I think I paid $40 uh, for a Kitts Point parking, resident parking permit. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I think that would be like a day of parking at the beach. It's so vastly underpriced. The, the city did a decent job in the West End raising prices, but I, I think there's neighborhoods where permits are probably worth, you know, well over $1,000. So let's make more money off of parking, raise parking uh, resident fees, uh, install meters anytime there's congestion and, and raise prices as necessary. You know, I, I am not into uh, the roads being congested and people driving around the street for parking. You know, everybody's better off. I'd rather pay more for parking uh, and, and find it easier to find. So that's number one. Two, tolls. You know, I think we probably ought to toll everything into the city. I mean, you know, Lionsgate Bridge, imagine trying to drive to North Vancouver at uh, 5.30 p.m. Uh, on a Friday in ski season. That should not be free. You know, uh, I, I again, I think, I, I don't know what you guys think. Do you, do you have a sense of politically if people are happy or unhappy that the Portman Bridge disappeared to, with the toll? I think they were initially happy. And then when the traffic got a lot worse, there's been some uh, second thoughts on that. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I heard the traffic was so bad. And it makes sense, you know. I mean, riffraff, not riffraff, but that's a bad way to put it. But somebody for whom it's not worth a couple of bucks to drive over the bridge does not belong on the bridge at rush hour because the impact on everybody's commute is a lot more than $2 worth of time. Okay, so that's bridges and tolls. Let's let's see some support for that. Uh, the city should seek to increase the fraction of trips made by foot, bike, and transit and reduce travel by private car. Cars are bad for the environment and cause congestion. Uh, enough said, that is, uh, that is not an economist. That is somebody who cares about the environment. Okay, then we go to my list of Vancouver's a great place to have money, but a tough place to make a living. Uh, and so how do you fix that problem? Higher taxes on short-term rentals, 
sell the right to build at greater density. We covered both of those in terms of the budget. Uh, the BC Housing Affordability Fund proposal, check, done. That's the speculation tax. Raise property taxes. Uh, oh, and another one, increase the interest rate on deferred property taxes. You know, uh, senior citizens uh, in BC, and not even senior, 55 plus, uh, and families with children are allowed to defer their property taxes. And for older homeowners, it's at some ridiculous bargain interest rate, I think 1% or less. So I, I think it's totally appropriate if you have poor grandma who wants to stay in her home and can't afford her property tax every year, it's fine to give her the, uh, you know, the money, but you don't have to give her a subsidized loan, at least charge a market rate. If you charge more than the borrowing cost of the province, you know, you actually make money on it. Uh, and, and you only get people using it who do. I, I can't wait till, well, I, I certainly can wait until I'm 55. But uh, w- when I hit that age, you bet I'm going to defer. And uh, why not? It's arbitrage. I'll, I'll put the money in the market and earn, you know, north of what I'm uh, accruing interest at. Okay, uh, number five, this is important. Going forward, working households are not going to be able to afford detached single family homes. Every time a single family home is demolished, to build a luxurious new single-family home, with or without laneway or basement suites, policy has failed. You know, anybody who moves around the west side, you know, all the, how many homes have been demolished? You know, Jens von Bergman and some people, actually, I think the city's actually now showing a map of all the teardowns and permits so you can actually count. You know, it's like every time, what's the line in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, every time what happens? An angel gets their wings. A bell rings. Every time a bell rings. Well, every time a single family house is torn down on the west side, uh, the devil gets its horns. I mean, uh, you know, you get a single family luxury mansion that uh, nobody who works for a living, uh, you know, and, and hasn't inherited huge wealth can afford. My old neighborhood. Uh, yeah, I saw that a lot of modest size houses getting replaced with just slightly bigger houses. Pausing on that, what would your preferred solution be? Would it be a multi-unit home or would it be sort of conglomerating them into rentals if the zoning was changed? Okay. So exactly. So remember, I think we ought to auction. So I, I, I would say, you know, how much do we want built in a year of what type of house? And then what, you know, and I would auction it. So I would make everything condo because, or for sale, just because the market is so strong for that. Now, if you auction it off, the city would be swimming in money. But if you want some guaranteed rental units, I have no problem with saying, well, let's make sure we build at least 5,000 rental units a year. Let's see what the market's willing to pay those. You'll collect less money in auction proceeds as the city from selling the right to build, uh, but you'll get guaranteed rental as opposed to condos, which you know might get rented out, especially with the empty homes tax uh, and now the speculation tax, but they may not. So... Um, you know, that, that's my preferred outcome. But then the question is, what is it that the city should be auctioning? You know, what what should we allow? So in a neighborhood like Dunbar, I think clearly, you know, three to four story walk up uh, townhomes or townhouses, that, that, that doesn't seem like too much density for a place where land is worth what it's worth there. Should we be allowing what the market wants, which is a 50 story tower everywhere? I, I think that might be pretty harsh on amenity for the city and, and, and lead to some unwanted congestion. So, you know, the missing middle, I think, is <laughs> the sort of apartments, but not huge towers. The uh, four floors and corner stores. Yeah, four floors and a corner store sounds good. 
I think that's probably about right. So a floor to floor space ratio, you know, total building to lot size of two, you know, that would be something. I mean, it's quite a compromise in the direction of amenity and away from the market. But I think that would, that's a very nice built form that that shouldn't freak anybody out. So somewhere in the two to four range, I guess, of floor space ratios where I'd replace single family with. But again, you can do it slowly. You can say we're only going to auction off however many units a year. So that's number uh, six. And, you know, that's it, people ought to remember how much money that is. So suppose every year the city of Vancouver allows 10,000 units to be built uh, on, you know, very low density land. And those units can each sell for a million dollars more than construction cost. That's uh, $10 billion a year. So a couple of sky trains. Yeah, it's bigger than the annual budget, I think somebody told me <laughs> by a lot. So, you know, I mean, just, you know, the screw up that the cities have done. And, you know, Vancouver's great. I think they're okay. But I mean, the magnitude of how much money the city could make off of this is so huge. Uh, so I think people really need to bear this in mind. You know, let's, you don't need to have the entire West side be a construction zone. And I, I suspect we're going to have some people running for mayor who are going to say the whole city should be rezoned immediately. I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if I was going to lay, if I was going to bet on any one individual, I assume we're talking about Bremner. Yeah. He announced earlier this week. So. But I, I'm guessing you guys have devoted multiple uh, episodes to that question. Um, and will. But uh, he, you know, I would not give away the zoning because, again, 10 billion bucks a year is an awful lot uh, to give away for free uh, to landowners and to developers. So that's six. Seven, excellent public schools are more important than low property taxes. You know, I, I've had a, you know, a decent experience in the public schools. Uh, you know, there's certain niches that the public schools, I, I don't think, do a great job with. I think the class sizes are too big. There's not enough attention to special needs kids. Um, gifted and talented could be better So uh, in the elementary school. So could do a better job there. Uh, preserving and enhancing open space and environmental quality are important. Personal preference. And uh, my favorite, adding fossil fuel traffic through Vancouver is undesirable. Whatever could that be referring to? <laughs> That's, again, totally personal preference. But as an economist, I would say the big ones are... Uh, Give up on single family homes is what we build. You know, all the building ought to be sold off. The city should make money on it, uh, but it's got to be multifamily to be realistic. It would both make uh, the city richer in terms of uh, ability to spend money and help the poor, and it creates housing for the middle class. Well, thank you once again for joining us, Professor Davidoff. Always a real pleasure. I would, let's do this again sometime. We'll talk about the mayor's race and city council. I look forward to it. Yeah, sounds good. Guys, have a good night. Thank you. So we are calling in from Calgary now, Lindsay Ted's friend of the show. Lindsay, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. So the MSP task force released an interim report recently. Can you tell us what the task force has been up to? Sure. Um, for the last couple of months, um, you know, we've been doing, we started out by doing a, a really deep dive into the whole BC tax system. So we got a, a really good understanding of all of the different aspects. And then um, we were then narrowing it down into options that met the criteria that we were given in. And I think, you know, Two of the ones that 
um, really limited a lot of our options, the one on revenue stability, um, as well as ensuring that um, we maintain a business competitiveness, you know, fairness, efficiency, simplicity for a tax person. Those, those are those are fairly easy ones, but competitiveness and revenue st- stability are not that easy. So, you know, we, we were in the process of narrowing it down and, and getting into some of the finer details. Um, as well, you know, there was a, um, a, a portal that people could provide their views to, and we were reviewing those. And we met with some key groups, mostly groups who we were interested in getting information from that we didn't have at our fingertips. Um, so, you know, we, it was just a small group that we met with, with some, with some very, um, key questions, uh, for them to see whether or not they could help uh, help us with some of the issues we were dealing with. What did your interim report recommend to the government? Well, I, I mean, we didn't make any recommendations per se because uh, it was a uh, an interim report. Um, we provided some advice, and then we indicated some uh, the the couple of the areas that we were leaning in. So, in terms of the advice, um, one of the things that we were very, very adamant about is that there shouldn't be a phase in of new measures and a phase out of MSP. Um, whatever was going to take the place should come in, and on that day, the MSP premiums could should go out. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, MSP is a, a bargainable remuneration um, for a number, uh, a, a large percentage of employees and having any overlap um, was going to cause a lot of complexities um, for businesses with regards to their collective bargaining. Um, We also thought it was important that um, there be reasonable notice to take effect for the same reason um, that uh, employee and employer benefit groups had had to have enough notice to use that time to ensure a nice smooth transition. Um, We, when we looked at Ontario, it was about a three-month notice that was given in Ontario, and the number of arbitration cases that came out of them um, implementing their uh, their 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 health care levy and the personal income tax system, you know, something we very much wanted to avoid, and we wanted to learn the lessons from Ontario. And then the last one was, I mean, we were tasked to replace, you know, about 1.3 billion, which was the main, remaining 50% of the MSP premiums. Um, you know, th- it is actually a lot of money uh, for that to come from one um, particular uh, tax with the conditions that we were given. So in order to sort of ameliorate all of the negative impacts, um, we very much recommended uh, that a suite of options be implemented and not just one. So ultimately this week, it looks like the BC government decided to go ahead with its own plan, I guess. It, Carol James, <laughs> Carol James announced that MSP will be eliminated on January 1st, 2020, and this will be replaced with a employer health tax that's starting on January 1st, 2019, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And that will mm-hmm. be a progressive payroll tax, it looks like. So businesses with payrolls of under $500,000 don't pay anything. Those in a middle income bracket, I guess, of up to 1.5 million have a reduced rate and the rest pay 1.95%. So could you mm-hmm. just walk us through what a payroll tax is from the point of view of an employer and how you are looking at this maybe as part of the task force? 
So, you know, payroll tax of this nature um, is uh, about increasing the cost of employment. So, you know, it, it applies to the amount of your payroll uh, of, as a business um, and is unrelated necessarily uh, to size because, you know, how that payroll is divvied up amongst individuals, um, you know, all depends on the industry. You could have um, a business where one person takes you over that threshold or you could have a business where it takes like 30 people to take you over that threshold. Um, so it's certainly not, it's not necessarily related to the number of employees, but what it does is it increases the cost of employees. So, um, you know, one of the things that you want to think about when you're putting a cost on businesses to hire, um, you know, is, is, is that kind of the direction you want to go? How much of it do you want to place on them? And, you know, as economists, what we're really interested in is, of course, just because you put um, a tax on a business doesn't mean that that's who pays it. Uh, and the research shows that the payroll tax, the burden um, very much lies in the hands of employees through reduced remuneration. Uh, and so the, the, these are the issues that you really want to want to keep in mind when you're bringing in a, a payroll tax. Would you say the way they structured it helps address some of those concerns and mitigate them? Um, the fact that so um, the larger incidents, uh, the the larger portion of the payroll taxes that fall on employees, you know, the research suggests the smaller the business the more likely it is the full burden is going to be paid by employees. So one could argue that the threshold is such that um, we're, we're reducing the amount that employees bear as part of this. Um, but, but overall, it, this is a, a tax that, while it's levied on corporations, is borne by employees. Probably about 66% if you look at the averages that are in, in the research. Uh, and so we, we, given that we knew that, we were looking at ways to, um, share the burden to ensure that less of the payroll tax would, um, would unknowingly fall on, on employees. Uh, and that's, um, why we were potentially, I mean, we were also exploring um, a levy through the Income Tax Act as a way to, to better share the burden across everybody who benefits from health care. So like the argument you, you'd have for why an employer should pay um, part of a health premium is that they benefit from a healthy workforce, but you wouldn't want them to pay the whole burden of it. You sort of chuckled when I noted that the employer health tax starts a year before the MSP elimination <laughs> and that does sort of conflict with your first advice. And I'm not going to ask you in your role as M chair of the MSP task force to really comment on that, that cynically from my point of view could be seen as maybe a way of paying for some of the other promises, like get a new Patello bridge. I imagine that mm -hmm. would raise quite a bit of money and cover some of the other things. But I'm curious with the plan that the NDP has rolled out, what's next for the MSP task force? Yeah, um, so, I mean, obviously, we, we're, we're regrouping a little bit and trying to understand um, what our role is. We have been told that the expectation is, is that we continue in our work. 
Um, but I think that the work that we are doing has changed. I mean, our task has been solved, so to speak, right? So, <laughs> um, we are not, uh, certainly, um, Minister James, um, I believe it was either today or yesterday, I'm losing track of time, said clearly that, uh, that this, this is it, um, th- that the MSP has been addressed and uh, no additional measures will be brought in. But I think, as you can imagine, if we did a um, real full review of the tax system, we actually learned a lot of things that could be addressed. And if we now no longer have to worry about coming up with a specific amount or worry about revenue stability, we have um, some of the things that we took off in our options kind of come back on. And so really what I think we're going to do is is uh, just ensure that that information is provided um, to the government, some of the things that we have learned and some of the recommendations that we would make to um, changes in tax policy. So, in other words, lay the foundation for a tax reform commission? (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Possibly. (laughs) Um, You know, I think... I, I think it's, I think anybody getting involved again, um, might want to set some terms and conditions, um, uh, for what their expectations are if a task force is formed and, and, and where their recommendations lead. Um, you know, we, so possibly it might lay the foundation for, for broader tax reform, but I think more poignantly it may, more short-term solve some of the problems that they have yet to be able to solve themselves. Well, I don't have any more questions besides just maybe a little off the MSP topic. Maybe you could just update us with what you're doing over in Calgary now. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> um, I, uh, ha- I'm i on my, my research semester, so um, our program is structured a little differently. Um, so rather than having my summers off to to focus on research, uh, my January semester is it. And um, I elected uh, to take a, a visiting position at um, the University of Calgary, where I'm going to be starting a full-time position on May 1st. That sounds like fun, especially I in think it is. the middle of winter. <laughs> in the middle of winter. And it was like minus 40 when we landed on Christmas Day. So, yeah. Um, and I've been sick almost the whole six weeks I've been here, so <laughs> um, it, it's been it's been interesting. And and yeah, I'm looking forward to maybe getting involved in Alberta politics and tax policy. Yay! <laughs> hey, uh, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to uh, discuss? You know, um, I think everybody knows that I'm one of those people that is um, you know quite cautious about interest groups who come up and say oh, woe is me, I shouldn't have to bear this burden. Um, the the critiques that's coming out of the business community, and I think the um, the Business Council of BC has been um, pretty good in this area. Uh, in this case, I think people need to understand that this payroll tax hasn't come in in an isolated event, that these businesses have been facing a number of challenges, including you know, the increase in the minimum wage, we've had some CPP increases, EI increases, tax reform in the United States, granted offset with some reduction in the small business rate, but increases in the big business rate. And I, what the BC Business 
um, Business Council of BC is making clear that it's not just the payroll tax, it's the accumulation of all of these things. And I have to admit that is something that we considered carefully and I think the critiques that are coming out about that fact need to be listened to and carefully considered. Well, thanks for taking the time and joining us this evening. Well, thanks for having me again. Well, moving into quick takes, we have what looks to be the start of a contested nomination for the NPA mayoral slot. Yeah, so in addition to Glenn Chernin, who announced a while back, uh, Councillor Hector Bremner announced on Monday he's going to be seeking the nomination for mayor. And also, Wei Young of Stephen Harper's... CPC Jesus. Yes, Stephen Harper's Jesus-esque fame is also campaigning but hasn't officially announced yet. Yeah, there's this really, really weird story in the Vancouver Sun about how they found a letter with like her promising to do uh, fundraising. And it's like an investigative journalist piece into, is she running? Because they found She's made noises about running earlier, like several, you know, early fall i think and so was. they have her under construction website and all of that so she, everything is in place for her to be running it's just not she's yeah. running like she, she's campaigning it's she just, just doesn't want to talk to the media about it because they're going to make fun of her like we do maybe so two very different candidates and especially versus Chernin, who represents that grumpy nimby corner of npa all competing for the same spot i guess it's definitely going to be a fierce nomination battle. And, you know, with any luck, the MPA will be going in Bremner's direction because, you know, I think that's the way the city needs to be moving more, kind of really getting serious about tackling housing and, you know, doing some big changes in that way. Whereas the other two are, I think, much more fine with either the status quo or you know, trying to reset the clock 20 years. I think each of them brings their own flags for me. Bremner's coziness with developers, Chernin's just anger <laughs> at change, and Wei Young's wackiness. It's going to be a dirty mayoral race this October, no matter which one of them wins, especially when you have names like Livy Davies and other leftists being tossed around. It'll be fun, though. Not so dirty is the word I'd use, but definitely uh, combative. Maybe I think it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a pretty passionate uh, election. I think for everyone. Well, next up, the Drunkirk battles seem to be <laughs> over. With news today, earlier in the week, the government of Alberta had taken out full-page newspaper ads in this province, BC, to say that our government was breaking the, quote, rules of confederation. And it literally shows a picture of Canada with BC breaking off. And I did see people on Twitter mocking that as like, now we're part of the, we didn't know Notley was part of the Cascadian movement. And I kind of liked it because when I grew up in Alberta, an Alberta premier knew that Alberta needed to leave, not other provinces. (laughs) So this was the ad they run. I guess that worked or else it was just inevitable Today, the news was that BC is pausing our thing that didn't happen, which was 
this idea of bringing in new regulations and restricting bitumen through the province until we figured out the science around what happens when you throw undiluted bitumen into the water. So yeah, Bad now stuff. yeah, now that's actually just going to be a question for the courts, or more specifically, whether or not BC can ask that question and it put in regulations surrounding it. So they're going to be going to the Supreme Court for a reference on the matter and the other four policies they proposed, they're going ahead with because they didn't get much pushback on that. And this was enough for Alberta. Rachel Notley said, that seems fine. Let's let the courts decide it then. And now Alberta, now BC wines are flowing back into Alberta. Who's going to be the next trade war? I'm thinking Newfoundland versus Manitoba. Not sure on what, but, you know, they haven't been in the national headlines for a while, so I'm sure they'll find something. Quebec and Newfoundland have had their fair share of battles over energy and more reasonable things than wine or license plates, but I look forward to the next (laughs) crisis of confederation. So moving on, uh, yesterday, Liberal MLA Linda Larson uh, introduced a private member's bill, M201, to end daylight saving times in BC, which, you know, I'm entirely on board with, and it's about time. Same. Actually, John Horgan last year, and I think we talked about this when he just randomly mused about, oh, maybe we could end daylight savings. And if you like that idea, emailed me. He talks now about how he got 10,000 emails for that, but it's not on his radar yet. So I think that's what maybe helped precipitate Larson putting this bill as the first private member's bill forward. So, you know, so maybe everyone else should email again or resend those emails because daylight savings time stupid and we should get rid of it. Alberta had a backbencher New Democrat who put forward a similar bill and it was getting some traction, but I guess got a bit controversial because some companies like WestJet thought it would get complicated if Alberta's not on daylight savings time, so what BC is. So supposedly... Saskatchewan isn't. They've already figured that one out. How can... But Larson has said in one interview that she emailed that MLA and didn't get a response because I guess they don't have staff or anything to make that work. But anyway, she wants to... In the midst of the wine war, you know, there was... There you go. Yeah, no diplomatic communication happening. Even from the BC liberals too, but... (laughs) She wants to coordinate because she figures if two provinces are talking about this, that makes it a bit easier to swallow the business case. Well, private members' bills don't tend to go very far, especially in a divided legislature, but maybe with the breakdown of the seats, she can pick off a couple new Democrats in the Green Party and get this through. Yeah, and hell, the, the Premier has mused about putting this forward already. So, you know, there may be the if not political will, at least minor interest in the topic. And daylight savings time saved the lives. And finally, news this week came out of BC's Passenger Transportation Board, which, if you don't know what that is, they are the ones who say whether or not things like Greyhound can cancel bus routes. Greyhound had applied saying that a number of their routes had low ridership and were bleeding revenue and they wanted to cut these as of June 1st and the transportation board approved that. Now, 
what one of these kind of makes sense. It's the route north of Prince George. And given that BC Transit launched a $5 service between Prince George, Burns Lake, and Smithers in June, it probably undercuts Greyhound. Yeah, I, I can see why Greyhound doesn't want to try and compete on that. But some of the other routes included Victoria to Nanaimo. Which is weird because those are the two largest population centers on Vancouver Island. And Victoria to Vancouver, which are the two largest in the province. And UBC to Whistler. Well, the uh, Victoria to Vancouver one made sense because you can transit and ferry and like it's probably cheaper than actually getting the Greyhound. But yeah, the other one, UBC to Whistler. If you, if you can't fill a bus full of students to go to Whistler... Every now and then, like, you have a problem there, and I, I don't think it's from a lack of demand. The few times I've ridden Greyhound, I've never enjoyed it. My, the main bus, long-distance bus route I had to take was from Edmonton when I was an undergrad to Calgary. And there, there was a competing service called Red Arrow. It's still around, and it had reserved seating, only three seats on per row, so two and one, so you could get nice, nicer seats. And it was only marginally more expensive. You got a nicer service. It was might have even been cheaper with the student passes we got. And you weren't treated like cattle. Greyhound's just shit. And maybe it deserves to die. The one downside of some of these northern routes is I don't know if their routes were all the same ones covered by this BC Transit. And it is a major issue in the north if you have no alternative to get around. If you have to end up hitchhiking because perhaps you don't have enough money for a car or you're trying to escape some terrible situation. So... Credit to Minister of Transport, Claire Travana, for saying the VC government is going to be looking to step in and make sure options do exist in all of these areas. But yeah, die a painful death, Greyhound. <laughs> it's about the right of British Columbians to be heard. Well, I'm closing off with this week's Best of BC Poly. Friend of the show, Patrick, in response to the end of the Drunkirk trade war, says on Twitter, our long national tantrum is over. And you can follow Pat at Patmeister. Next up, the city of Victoria gets a mention here for yesterday tweeting during the the snowstorm that due to snow, tonight's emergency preparedness workshop at City Hall has been cancelled. We look forward to rescheduling. Apologies for any inconvenience this may cause. After seeing the Many, many takes pointing out the irony of canceling your emergency preparedness workshop because of an emergency. And and this is Victoria, so let's just put this in context. We're talking a minor snowfall here. A couple centimeters. The city tweets as a reply. Yeah, thanks for the laughs tonight. Hashtag YYJ. Hashtag Victoria Snow Day. Hashtag West Coast Winter. Hashtag Still Canadians. With the office meme... Yeah, if you could go ahead and not tell the rest of Canada about our snow days, that would be great. (laughs) Follow the city of Victoria at City of Victoria. And perhaps the most ratioed person in BC Poly this week was MLA at Dan Ashton, BC, where after the budget came out, he tweeted the NDP war on upper end homes ignores that many of these homes command premium prices because they involve significant work from skilled tradespeople and expansive furnishings from BC builder supply companies, a blow for our residential construction and supply sectors, which again is just missing the mark in your criticisms. Yeah, also it's mostly land prices. 
there weren't a lot of great snarky comebacks, just a lot of, really? One of the ones I did like, though, was at Tony underscore Bui, B-U-I, tweets a response at him where he posts a picture of a screen cap of all of the donors to Dan Ashton and says in his tweet, among other things, are those builders the same ones who donated 25000 plus to your re-election campaign? Later, Dan Ashton tweeted again, my Twitter feed is tonight is full of many who disagree with my point early today that the BC premium housing industry, it's a whole industry now, didn't you know, <laughs> provides benefits for local tradespeople and suppliers. My DMs reflect that many of those tradespeople and suppliers now feel caught in the middle. I love when you can just refer to the like secret conversations you're having, like the silent majority. You should do what uh, Rachel Notley does and just post them on Twitter. Yeah, that would be a great idea. I'd love to read his DM feed. Anyway, we scrambled a bit for tweets this week for this week's Best of BC Poly, so make sure to nominate your favorite tweets throughout the week so we see them by throwing the hashtag Best of BC Poly on there. And that has been Plato's. Find lists of the stories we mentioned in the show notes at plato's.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Plato's Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.